Welcome everybody to another episode of the Dreamer Diary podcast. I am very excited for today's episode for many reasons. I I get excited whenever I have somebody else on who's going to tell their story just because I never know what to expect. Um, For those listening, the last episode, uh, there was a lot of really interesting information that was presented that kind of took the conversation in a totally different direction than I, I was anticipating. But it was all great stuff. And so I'm sure today's conversation with today's guest is going to do the same. If anything, I think it might generate some tears on my end because I think I I relate so much to the story that will be told today uh, for many reasons. And I um, am very excited and I just want to get us started. So let me introduce today's guest. Um, some of you may or may not have heard of her or you may have, uh, regardless of which one you are. Let me introduce her. Uh, her name is Arlene Correa Valencia. She is from Mexico. She is an accomplished individual. She Just a little bit of her background is that she, in 2020, completed an MFA in San Francisco. Uh, she has a BFA from uh, California College of, of the Arts. And then she did a lot of just really interesting projects as it pertains to art and exhibits promoting immigrants and the immigrant experience. Um, you'll have to correct me if my research is, is incorrect, but I believe you won an Emmy Award or you were part of a project that won an Emmy Award. That's right, yes. <laughs> Amazing. So in 2020, she was part of a project that earned an Emmy Award for uh, commu- like community affairs um, called Portraits of Napa Workers. Is that, did, did I get it right? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. And so her resume is four pages long from what I was able to get. So I don't want to go down because I'm sure that will take the full time together. So Arlene, please introduce yourself to the podcast and uh, let me know if I if I missed anything. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And thanks uh, to everyone who's listening and jumping on to hear this conversation. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, and to be able to share a little bit of what I do and what I advocate for in, in my work and in my life. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people listening and both of you have so much to connect with one another, you know? And I think that, I think there's so much power in sharing our story. So thank you for having me. Of course. And so for those who are listening, the reason why I decided to connect with Arlene is number one, if you haven't researched her or have heard of her, um, you will find that she's a very intriguing individual. She just her presentation um, and who she is. If you look her up on online, look at some interviews and stuff like that, um, just the way she presents herself is very impressive. And as you know, you research more of this stuff that she's doing artistically. Um, she's very involved with the Latino community, with the undocumented experience, and everything that she's doing is to empower us and, and empower our communities. And so. As I reached out to her, one of the things that, that stood out to me as um, as I kind of learned more about her and some of the projects that she was doing is the fact that she has a strong connection to the undocumented experience. So um, Arlene, c- could you kind of tell us a little bit more about what got you introduced to working with this community um, and more generally speaking, the Hispanic Mexican community of, of California? Yeah, of course. Well, I guess to start from the beginning, um, I came to the United States when I was three years old. I am from uh, Arteaga, Michoacan, a really small town in Mexico. 
Uh, and I was brought to the U.S. as a result of uh, the destabilized economy that Mexico has been living under for the last who knows how long, right? Um, so as, as a result of that, my family migrated to California, as many other Latin American and Mexican and Salvadoran, Guatemalan people do, um, in search of a better life, right? In search of the American dream. And I so um, luckily ended up growing up in Napa Valley, which is wine country, as everybody knows, it's opulence and it's recognition for wine and food. Um, I grew up here and I, I think really early on in my life, I, I began to realize that there was a separation between myself and my peers um, who were white. And so it was always really apparent to me that I was not from here, that I in many ways did not belong here and that my community um, and the people that I lived with, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in was not a part of the grand title of Napa Valley. And we were only the working class, the supporters, the, the, the little hormiguitas that make this whole thing run, correct? Um, and, you know, I overcame a lot of challenges being undocumented myself as a young teenager. Um, and eventually I decided that I would devote my life to advocating for people like myself, like my dad, like my mom and my siblings. Um, not because I wanted to highlight my own story, but because I really wanted to shift the focus onto the community at large and to talk about these, this issue of migration um, in, a, in a macro scale, right? To understand why migration is the result of these bigger political and economic moves that are so much out of our control. So um, yeah, that's sort of how I you know, got involved in, in, in wanting to work with, with my own community. Um, and it really came from a place of, of wanting to have a voice, right? Of wanting to, to, for somebody to listen to me. Um, for someone to listen to what I had to say and to not speak for me um, because it was something that as a child and even as an adult I ran into often was this trouble of people feeling like they had to take uh, the words out of my mouth to protect me uh, which I think is very complex and it's a conversation that is really complicated right because in, in many ways a lot of undocumented people do feel afraid to speak up um, uh, but that should not, I, I believe that should not be the case. And I think maybe, I don't know, what's your opinion on that? Do you, you know, um, how do you feel about people speaking up? I, I think that's a, that's a great question. One that can be answered in many ways, because I, I, I think it stems from the undocumented experience that one has as it pertains to at what point in the undocumented experience did you know you were undocumented? Because there's a lot of people that live their whole adolescence without really knowing until the day comes where they want to get married and they want to go get married at the courthouse and they don't have an ID. And or another one, they're going to have a baby and they don't have ID. And so, you know, it presents issues there. Or in my particular case, and I've talked about this in many episodes, so I won't go too much into, into my story again. But for me, it was I didn't know until I was 18. And when I found out at 18, it was like my world really got shocked. It was like turned upside down. So it's almost like, you know, the the, the words out of your mouth um, that you were, you know, talking about, it's it's really hard for me to answer because in some ways, like, I I grew up in a very conservative state in, in Utah. And so there, it's, you get really, you know, it, it's black or white, I would, I would say, in my personal opinion. You get those who are supportive and don't care 
um, that one is undocumented and will do everything that they can to empower you and, and to give you a voice. And I think that's what I, I realized when I was there is there are resources, community <clears throat> leaders, uh, just people in general who are there to provide an, a, a support system uh, by creating scholarships and by, you know, creating legislations. Uh, in Utah, we have something that's called HB 144, which basically is if an undocumented person decides they want to go to college and they graduated from a uh, Utah uh, high school from Utah uh, and, you know, they meet other criteria, which isn't like too crazy, you know, they're eligible for in-state tuition. They don't have to be considered an international student. So in some ways that kind of gives you a voice, you know, as an undocumented right. person. But on, on the contrary side as well, because it is a conservative state, you have the opposite, which depending right. on who you meet, they will do everything they can to silence your voice. They do not want, you know, people outside of the community knowing that they're undocumented people living within it. And, and they will do a lot to to silence the voice to the point where they will they will use religion. They will use politics. Yeah. They will use whatever way that they can to silence the voice. And so in my experience growing up in a place like Utah, um, you know, it was very segmented in where you could have a voice um you really mm -hmm. only had a voice if you were you know in a in a heavily saturated hispanic community otherwise if you went to like a suburb like a like a suburb that was very affluent no you were better off just hiding who you are and t and, and not you know telling anybody about your story and so you know, for me, like I said, I didn't know I was undocumented. I had suspicions yeah. growing up, but I didn't really know. And so I kind of wanted to throw that question back at you, which is, did you know or at what point in, in your adolescence or growing up, did you realize that you were undocumented or did, did you already know, like when you came to the U.S.? Yeah, well, I mean, at three years old, I didn't know, right? right. <laughs> there, was, yeah. there was no knowing. And and I think that's what really upsets me with what we're dealing with as dreamers and this legislation and fighting for the DREAM Act to continue um, is that we're, we're being um, punished for a choice that most of us, I would say the majority of us had no choice in, right? Yeah. Um, we had, we had no say. And I've done other interviews where people ask me why I chose to come here. And I'm like, do you understand that I was three years old? Like there was, there's, you know, like there was no decision. You, I, I didn't get to choose what I ate for dinner. I didn't get to choose where I went to school. It wasn't, there's, there are some simple things in life that just don't, we do not get to, to have a say in them. Yeah. Um, and, and so obviously, you know, I was unaware of my, my social and political status at that time, but, but I realized it very quickly. And I, I don't know if this was the case for you and I'm interested to hear from you and what you think, but I think, you know, like regardless of whether you know of what your, your documents have or might not have, I think as a person of color, you experience, you have experiences throughout your life. Yeah, you have moments that tell you and that um, in a way reveal your own identity before you are confronted with the actual facts of it. Right. Um, and so I think I, I don't ever really recall my parents having a conversation where they said, listen, this is what you are um, and this is how you have to protect yourself. But I think the language around me and the language that my community, my neighbors, the kids at school, that the language that we all spoke in our body, um, the things that we talked about all signaled to the fact that we were undocumented. Um, and I, I, in many ways, don't understand how people don't realize it, right? Because um, I think that for me, I grew up, you know, with kids calling me um, racial slurs, 
oh, and yeah. me going home and, and, <clears throat> and, and wanting to unpack that and saying like, mom and dad, what does that mean? You know, what does the wet back mean? And my mom and dad would say, well, someone who is that is, you know, across the river. And, and then, so these stories would in many ways unfold on their own, right? Um, I, I think that like you, I faced the real consequences of being undocumented at, at around the same age when I was 18, you know, when you're trying to make these bigger life decisions, when you want to go to college, when you want to drive, when you want to travel, um, yeah. and you, you actually take on agency over your own body with this like number, which is just ridiculous to me. But the idea that, that we are moving past the layers of um, growth and then reach this point where we're suddenly stunted, um, is really crazy, right? It's, it's, um, yeah. So, so I guess, I, I don't know if I answered that, but I guess in many ways, I never really knew um, concretely, but I always knew because of the way that, that I had to live my life and the way that my family structure was. Yeah. You, you brought up a really good point because it, in, in my experience, it's been that every, every, every stage of growth in, in the adult undocumented adolescent experience comes with it uh, um i guess in, in in my personal experience a challenge of identity um and and let me expound on that a little bit when you grow up undocumented in my case where my parents were like sabes que mijo like if anybody asks you de donde eres just say you're from here if anybody asks you say you're from here you're from here you're from here and when you're a little kid see i came when i was six months old i have my all my oh. baby pictures are you know me as a kid in la all of my friends and stuff like that, everything was here. So for me, it was very easy to believe this idea that like I'm from here, right? Maybe not on paper, but I'm from here. And so you, you start to grow up with like, you know, having to interpret for your parents and then having to take on these these other roles that like should not be happening for, you know, a, a, a small child. But it's happening because that's the reality of the undocumented experience is if your parents don't speak yeah. English, you now have to not only play, you know, son or daughter or whatever, but you also have to play interpreter. And then you also have to play, you know, you know, the devil's advocate in some cases, especially like parent teacher conferences, you know, depending on the circumstances. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, to me, when I think about that, it's like every iteration of growth as an individual, as a little kid came with it a challenge to my identity. It was like, am I really from here or am I not? And for me, it was always like when I had this challenge of like, well, maybe I am undocumented. It was always like there was something that pulled me back from that that idea, which was like, well, you, yeah, you're from here. Like, this is your life. This is where all your friends are. This is where you go to school. This is where you're learning. This this is your home. So for me, it was like, okay, whenever I had these like little doubts as a kid, it, they quickly went away. They quickly went away. Yeah. But as I got older, that's where things started to change. Like in my teens, what I experienced was, you know, again, being in Utah, there's a lot of um, people that speak Spanish, um, both because of the religion of the state, but also because just people want to learn Spanish. And so that's both a good thing and a bad thing. But in my experience, what I I noticed was a lot of the times the people that were, um, uh, how, how do I put this diplomatically or, or, or nicely, um, people who wanted to practice their Spanish who are not native speakers. I'll put it that way. They would okay, always... That's really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people who would fit that category would always say stuff like, so where are you from? And I'd be like, oh, I'm from here. No, 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 no. Where are you from? 
And I'd be like, well, what do you mean? I'm from here. No, 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 no. Like, where, you know, where, where's your family from? Oh, yeah, yeah. My family's from Mexico. Oh, okay. So when did your, <clears throat> when did your family come? Uh, well, uh, I don't know, a while ago. Oh, did they come legally? Do you have, do you have a social security number? And they would automatically start going down these questions. And it's just like you get to a point when people start asking you, you know, these types of questions all the time that you're, you, you kind of shelter yourself. You're like, you know what? It's better for me not to try to have any um, accent when I speak or, or to try to look mm-hmm. like people who are undocumented, quote unquote, because that's the kind of questions that will follow if I, if I dress different from my peers. And so for me, that was always my experience where I had people, you know, I, I worked at a movie theater at one point and when I would, and I was a, like a, a, a supervisor Friday nights, I'd get people that showed up that would say, w- without even asking, like, hey, do you speak Spanish? Automatically, the first thing was, hola, como estas? You know, in their English, you know, accent. Right. And and I would respond back in English, and, I'd, and I would say, how can I help you, sir? And then they'd say, oh, no hablas español, pero te miras como que hablas español? And they'd say stuff like that. And it was so hard for me not to engage in that because yeah. – because again, to me, it was like, are you, are you looking at me and thinking that I speak Spanish? Or do you know somebody who knows me that told you I speak Spanish? Which chances are that wasn't right. the case. So to me, like to your question, it's like every iteration of growth for me always had some kind of challenge to my identity. But most of the times it wasn't a challenge that allowed me to grow. It was more of a challenge of sheltering and, and concealing you know, that part of, of that intimate part of my identity, which was, yeah, I was undocumented, not because I wanted it, but because that was the right, case. Of course. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the larger picture here is, is not necessarily like sheltering, it's protection, right? Exactly. It's armor. Yeah. It's, yep. it's, it's this, it's what I like describe to people that I don't like, I think only undocumented people understand this. Like you wear armor all day, every day, even when you sleep. And you know that every question, every conversation has to be manipulated a certain way yeah. in order for you to achieve whatever whatever level of protection you need in that moment, right? So I think about this often, and I don't know if you visited California, like Napa Valley, um, Northern California, but because we are um, the hub of, of the wine, of wine industry, um, uh, we naturally attract a lot of migrant workers, um, and we have an insanely rich community of um, Mexican specifically uh, people. And so, you know, th- there is um, a church downtown uh, where you every Sunday you can essentially find all of like if you were to categorize all the Mexicans at the church every Sunday, right? And then after mass. They go to the flea market, which is like you know 15 minutes away, and so there's this there's this caravan of, of movement that happens for our community, right? Where like I'm not um, I'm not religious, so I don't partake in this, but I've studied the patterns of like how the undocumented community in, in, in my hometown moves throughout this valley of whiteness, right? And so Sundays are very specific in that manner, and that they start at the church. And then they move towards the flea market. And so you can very specifically track what people are doing, what they're buying, what they're eating, what they're consuming, right? Um, and ICE has used this to their advantage to target specific locations, yeah. right? To say, like, we will go to the church. And at the church, we're, we're guaranteed to find X amount of undocumented immigrants. 
and we will go to the flea market because the flea market is the is the shopping center essentially for all these undocumented agricultural workers and from there they move on to the mexican markets and so you have these places that even within our community are supposed to shelter you and protect you and are supposed to be for us right they're not for the gringos to come by they're like yellow mangoes or whatever like or or they're like exotic bananas <laughs> they're for they're, they're for us yeah you know they're so that we can keep eating our food so that we can have lengua and all those magical things that we want to hold on to from our home country right and even those places where we feel the most sheltered the most protected we're still watching over our shoulder oh, yeah. wondering if this is if this is the place where i'm going to quote unquote get caught right and 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 so when and I've, I've tried to explain this to people before where like you, when when you get to the point where you don't feel safe within your home within the four walls of or five or whatever they may be within the walls of your own home and you don't feel safe like at the grocery store or at church or at the market or at the park if, if you don't feel safe in any of those places the only place that you are safe is within your body and so naturally your body begins to to build this armor right yeah. this invisible armor that protects you that like in a way takes on so much assimilation we change our hair color, you know, we like, I, I always like just laugh when I see Mexicanas with blonde hair and I'm like, this is the most <laughs> ridiculous, like, you know, like you're having an internalized racist moment right now and I totally get it and I'm for it, but I need you to dismantle those ideas, you know? Um, oh, uh, sorry, what popped no, in my mind when ahead. you said that was, I think another thing that I would add to that, and I don't know if, if you experienced personally or if you knew people who fall into what I'm about to say, but I think another toxic, uh, I don't know if it's a, an undocumented thing or a Latino thing or Mexican thing. I don't know. But what I do know is that there's this kind of toxic idea that's been ingrained in so many um, individuals of our geographic region, put it put it that way, <laughs> that... Uh, um, have this notion that they need to look more Caucasian or they need to have family members. So for me, like my my mom as a kid would always say, te, vas a, te, te tienes que casar con una gringa, right? <laughs> and I didn't understand it. It was like, I'm five years old. The last thing I'm thinking about is getting married and getting married to a white girl. That's the last thing I'm thinking about. But when you're five right. and you're hearing this, what is the thing? How does your brain start to develop and process this type of stuff? You start to ask yourself, right. well, why? But then it's like, well, my mom's telling me, so it must be okay. So you just start to internalize these little, like, you know, things. And when you get older, you don't realize that that's actually a toxic thing because now you start looking for things that that maybe aren't necessarily what you wanted, but you've been kind of trained that that's what right. you want. So I, I agree when, when I see yeah. – uh, when I see uh, – when I see, uh, you know, Mexican women with like super blonde hair, I'm like, that's not natural. That is not natural. <laughs> hey, you, girl, you no. do you, but like that ain't natural. Well, and I think that the, the the sad, what really breaks my heart, not the sad part, because I guess everybody is entitled to their opinion, right? But I think what what really really hurts me about the forms in which we um, internalize the racism that we've experienced as a community and as as people. Um, is that we ourselves are beginning to erase our story. You know, we're beginning to erase our language and our traditions in, in order to feel that we are more American or more white or whatever that may be. And that's really tragic. And I think, you know, there are, obviously there are many trends that we can talk about in terms of what people are doing 
um, to become more socially acceptable into pop culture or whiteness or whatever that may be. But I think the one that I, I often argue about on Instagram, and if, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm constantly posting these, like <laughs> my husband calls them like, he's like, you're starting a fire. Like you just like to talk. Yeah, you're, fi- you, you're a fire starter. <laughs> yeah. He's like, and you just say the craziest things because you want people to react. And, and in many ways I really do because I want people to listen and to think about the choices that they're making. Right. And, and what I've been thinking about lately and I shared this not too long ago, is what the names that we're giving our children, um, you know, and the names that we're passing on to our children. And I think that for me, I've noticed a, a recent trend and a lot of um, Latinx folks um, naming this next generation of children, um, these names like Mason and Grayson and Wyatt, you know, and Matthew. And, like, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and it's, not, it's not to say that like there's anything wrong with those names, but when I think language for me is very important, right? And and the, the ability to communicate with one another in our native language, which is Spanish, and it's not native to Mexico at all, but it's yeah. the most native that we know as of you know the last hundred years or so or whatever. Yeah. But um, so so I I was thinking about this because I don't have children, but my sister has a daughter, and um, I very specifically said to my sister, you know, when this baby comes, she needs a name that means something, a name that holds. Um, cultural and family value, something that is not just you wanting her to not be a target of racism or um, or discrimination or anything like that, because that's going to happen inevitably, right? Like we as brown people, unless we change our skin color, are going to suffer the consequences of just all the racism that is, has been instilled into our society for centuries, yeah. right? And so... Um, yeah, I, I just I just think that like you know if, if we can't even name our children names that are easily easy for our grandparents or our parents to pronounce, then we're erasing that child's identity before it's even born. You know, we're already contributing to how that child is going to feel to their internalized racism before they're even taking their first breath. Yeah, we're calling them names that that we believe to have more value and we're belittling their own culture before we even meet them. And that to me is just like, how can we do that? Like, how, how yeah. is it possible that we have not yet been able to, to understand that idea and to dismantle it within our own community? I think there's something else that, I, I, that I've observed, um, both personally and externally, um, with just my observations of people, I've seen how, you know, there's this a lot, growing trend of specifically like Mexican people that are marrying, you know, non-Mexican people, I'll put it that way again. Um, and what my observation has been is that one person tends to overpower the other person's culture, meaning that like there's one person that bends more to the other person's culture than the other. And in the people that I know personally, it hasn't been that the person that that they married bent to their Mexico Mexican culture. It's been the other way around. Their Mexican culture has been put to the side in favor of their American culture. So what that means is that these people that I know that, you know, they married an American citizen. They're from Mexico, whatever. And then. After a couple of years, se creen gringos. Like they, 
they think that they're not Mexican anymore or that they're not Hispanic anymore. And so then they start talking down to those who are still, you know, very active in the Mexican community. And that in some ways bothers me because to your point, like we're forgetting who we, who we are and who we come from, like where we come from, like, you know, for personal firsthand experience, not me personally, obviously my, you know, my name's not um, (laughs) Jose, but uh, you know, I know a guy whose name was Jose, right? And then he, when he became an American citizen, he changed it to Joseph. I'm like, dude, <laughs> like, really? You look straight up Mexican and you're going to change your name to Joseph? And then in another circumstance, right? <laughs> I know somebody else who changed their name from, you know, they changed, they changed their name to Grace, you know, in English when they became a citizen. And... Oh, no, they're not Mexican. They're American. But then when they go to Mexico, oh, so, you know, Americana and I can buy, you know, I have all this money and I can do all these things when they go to Mexico and they flaunt it, you know. So it kind of it, it, I, I, I don't know why that happens, but that's just an observation of mine. But, you know, I think something else that happens and I and, and I think this is also part of um, a, a longer conversation, a more um deeper conversation uh which would be entertainment right where people are mm-hmm. getting these ideas because again if you look at the fact that in latin america telenovelas that's number one you can always find oh, like yeah. las tias las abuelas mom you know the cousins watching the telenovelas all day long and if all they're seeing is a certain type of look that is portrayed in these novelas without giving indigenous individuals or in people of indigenous descent um, you know, protagonist roles in these these shows, you know, that's another way where we're kind of losing our cultural identity because we're not seeing familiar faces anymore. We're now seeing faces that are unfamiliar and now we're accepting them as something that is familiar. And um, I don't know if you have Hulu or not, but there's a show called Promised Land uh, and it's kind oh, of... Wow. It's kind of a, it's kind of up your alley. It's about Napa Valley. Uh, it's like a, a winery show. Basically, what it is, it's like um, it's a, it's a show where you have these the the this young per, this, this young couple who came undocumented from Mexico and they did some things to be able to work in a wine um a, a, a winery or something like that in Napa Valley. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, they ultimately end up owning the 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 wine company and um you know the whole story kind of goes backwards from when they came as an undocumented um person and then it fast forwards to the present day when they have kids and their kids and stuff like that and you see elements of what we're talking about right now where the main character uh he's he has he got married with an american girl who was the daughter of the original who was the daughter of the owner who was the original wine owner. And then something happened. He died. So this guy married the daughter and ended up, you know, um, taking over the business. And then it just gets crazy. So I would highly recommend the show. But the reason I bring that up is because you were talking about, you know, erasing our traditions. And that is a point in this. There's a point in this show that the reason why I recommend it is because he brings that up because, there's a point where he talks about how, how he was hiding and doing everything to conceal his undocumented status. And he was working with Papeles Chuecos in, in the storyline. Yeah. And so 
the 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 story comes out that he doesn't have papers and that he's undocumented. And so you just see him kind of going through this internal battle with do I tell people who I really am, which is a part of me that comes with a lot of just scary things, right? I could get deported, mm-hmm. I could lose my business, I could lose my family, yeah, all these things, right? But then there's this other part, right, which is well, if I keep things the way they are and I'm complacent and I don't no le muevo nada, right? I keep things with the way they are. Mm-hmm. Things will be like things will stay the way they are. But then he he would continue to not be happy because he's not true to the fact that he's still undocumented. And the reason why that personally resonates with me is because when I was like um, 20, 21, probably around 21, closer to 21, I think, um, you know, at this point in my life, I was already married with my wife um, and she was working three jobs. And. She was doing everything she could. And at that time, DACA wasn't even announced. It wasn't even a thing. And I was just trying to figure out what I'm going to do, you know. So I started looking yeah. at universities in Mexico. I was, you know, I played you know, American football in, in high school. So I was like, maybe I'll just go play for like one of the schools down there that have that. La Un- uh, UNAM or there's a school in Cancun that plays American football. So I was like, maybe I could go there. And then one day I was sitting by myself in our apartment. Mind you, I couldn't work. I had no money for school. Um, And the reality of my situation, just it was too much. It was too much because I was fighting the fact that I I didn't want to be undocumented, even though I still had that as my label. I was fighting it so hard. And I was standing in my kitchen. I had just washed the dishes. And... uh, I was washing, like, I, I, I just finished washing, like, the, the knives and stuff. And there was one big knife that I saw, and I just looked at it. And it was just like, whew, man, I wasn't planning on getting this deep. But I looked at this knife, and I just thought, I'll just end it. You know, like, no one's really going to care. Like, if I, if I kill myself, like, um... I'm just another I'm just another undocumented person that like it's not going to amount to anything. And as I stood there just staring at this knife with all these thoughts going into my mind, it was so hard not to listen to those thoughts. It was so hard not to like succumb to this 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 notion that like, you know, killing myself would be the way out. And as I was standing there, it felt like 10 years had gone by, but in, in reality, it was probably like seconds, if anything. And I had this feeling, this thought that popped into my mind, which was, if you end it now, what's it going to accomplish? You know, I'm not going to be able to change the world. I'm not going to be able to change my family. I'm not going to be able to do the things that I want to do. And in that moment, I just was like, you know what? I can't. I can't. I have to accept the fact that this happened to me. I didn't choose to be undocumented. I didn't want that. I have no idea what that even really was, but that was who I am, and I had to be true to it. And I accepted it in that moment that, like, this was my struggle in life, and I'm going to do everything I can to get over it. And after that, after that moment, like my life changed. Um, I, I partnered up with yeah. this organization called Educational Opportunities for Utah's Children, and they gave me a scholarship to go to community college and and to continue my studies. And part of their fundraising was to um, 
attend uh, like um, like panel discussions with the yeah. various school districts of the state of Utah and just promoting, you know, edu- like edu- educational awareness um, with interactions with students of undocumented backgrounds. And that could be wow. their parents as well. So we would travel all over the state of Utah and Wyoming too to go and promote um, you know, the, the scholarships that were being offered and not just that, also a book that was created telling the stories of, of dreamers. And it was through that experience that I realized that, you know, it's okay that, you know, you were undocumented. It's okay because at the end of the day, you get to rewrite your story, you know? And that yeah. I think, that I think is what, you know, when I when I saw that part of that show, The Promised Land, uh, when I saw him kind of go through his version of that, man, it felt wow. like it felt like a tsunami wave had had just hit yeah. me because it, it felt so real. You know, it was like it was like oh, man, it was intense. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think thank you for sharing that story, but I think even within the the different um i guess like tiers of dreamers because there are some of us that are um older and younger and um and there are different generations right it's not just we're, we're not all the same age we all come from different places and and i think that we all experienced um being undocumented very differently and i think i think maybe you are under a closer category as my brother right where he had to live um, more years like really facing not being because even DACA is not a secure thing it's no. not like it does it hasn't given us everything right it gives us some opportunity but it's very limiting um but but to to your story like I I feel like you had to live like the you know your early 20s and when you're trying to get a job you're trying to do these things with absolutely no hope right like yeah. with no hope that anything was going to happen um, whereas like when I was, I think I was 18 when DACA came into play. And so I, I had that moment of like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm worthless to society. I, I can't even get a job at Target, you know, but it, my, my period wasn't for long. Like the, my period was very short. Whereas I think other people had to go through a much longer period of that. And the consequences were really depressing. Um, they're really real. I, and I wish that more people understood that, right? That more people understood how much being undocumented consumes your body, yeah. you know, and your mental health, your, your, your spirit, like it really breaks you down because in, in everything that we do in life, we're asked for a number, we're asked for an ID. Like one of the things that I, that always just messed me up so badly was that we couldn't, we can't, we couldn't even return something at the store. Like if you went to went to like Walmart and bought yeah. something and you wanted to make a return, I couldn't return something because I didn't have an ID. So even though I had the money or whatever, or even if we could buy things, you can't return them. And so that really like dehumanizes you. And, exactly. And, and it's awful. It is the worst feeling in the world. Wow. Exactly. I mean, and, and, and the thing is that we, we put up with it. Right. Like our parents right. put up with it, our friends and their parents put up with it and they put up with it because there's what's the alternative? Like, yeah. Go back to Mexico or, or wherever they're from. Like, sure, that is an option. Right. But when one invests so many years into this country, you're embedded here. 
you're this is your new home, you know, and and right. when that's the case, when you can't even return something you bought, you know, that says a lot. And it's not just that. I think uh, in in a previous episode, I was having <clears throat> a conversation about um, something similar to this, which was the fact that at, at eighteen, you know, one of my my guest podcasts like couldn't go couldn't go out and, and, and hang out with friends because the places the friends wanted to go to required identification and that identification she didn't have. So that forced right. her to have to say, you know what, actually, I can't go. I just, I don't have money or my parents won't let me go. And so you start yeah. to have to put up with these little white lies, so to speak. But when you put, oh, yeah. when, when you make so many white little white lies, eventually you start believing them and then be, they become bigger lies, you know? Um, yeah, I'm hold on. I wanted to ask you because I know we started our podcast a little late. Um, do we have a hard stop at, at, at seven? Do we have a hard stop now? You tell me. Uh, no, I'm flexible. We can keep going. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I yeah. think, I think those that are listening to this podcast, if we were to end now, are going to be like, Christian, are you kidding me? This is juicy. <laughs> this is a good conversation. I need to hear more. Yeah. Let's keep it going. Um, but, yeah. But I think well, no, and you know, I, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt no, you, you, but I wanted cut me to off. Like, <laughs> I wanted to, I just you know, because we talk, we're talking so much about these moments that are struggles, right? These things that we're doing um, that sometimes we're not aware of that we we engage in to erase our culture, our language, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but but I I want to like make sure that people know that we don't have to do those things anymore. You know that like those those. Um, actions of protection, of survival, uh, those tactics that keep our family safe, we, we don't have to live under those anymore. Um, and there are so many things that we can do on our day to day to, to like work against erasure um, and, to, and to begin to like, I always think of it as like this tiny seed. And I know that there's this saying, you know, that they thought they could bury us, but we were, seed, we're seeds and we come back or something like that, right? And it's like the seed has been hidden for so long and we even throw dirt at ourselves to hide, right? But if we begin to dig up the layers of concrete and, and just trash that have been piled on top of us, we're going to discover something beautiful yeah. and we're going to have a beautiful fruit to give to our children and our grandchildren. And that is like, I, th I think to me, that's the most exciting thing. Um, and often I get, you know, I get asked why I have so many tattoos because I'm completely covered from face to toes in tattoos. <laughs> um, and, and, and that, that the tattooing has been that for me and my family. Um, we have been, um, getting tattooed for about, about 10 years now. And all of the tattoos that my siblings and I have are, uh, telling the stories of the Mexica, the yeah. native people of Mexico, um, and telling the stories of creation and the leyendas that, you know, our grandparents told and all of that. And, and at, at one point in my life, I decided that I was no longer going to try to be white and that I would be the most Mexican person that I could ever be. So that's, I, I forced people to say my whole name. I'm like, it's Arlene Correa Valencia and it's not Arlene Correa. You can't shorten it, you know, like you can't, you can't, you have to say the whole thing, even if you can't say it, because that is part of my identity. That is part. And so, you know, that's part of who I am. And so I've gone on this journey of making myself look as Mexican as possible to the point where like I tattooed everything on me because I wanted to make sure that there was no 
room for interpretation, right? That there's no room for you to say that I am not this. And if, if my appearance, if my name, if the way that I speak tells you that I'm undocumented, I'm so proud of that, you know? But I, but it, but for me, it's also taken a lot of work to, to do that same thing that you're talking about, right? To get to that moment where you're not going to allow this to be your death and where you're going to turn it around and make this, in many ways, your greatest asset. Um, and I know that for myself, and I would love to know if you feel this way, uh, I've come to a point in my life where I am, I feel that being undocumented is the greatest privilege that I could have ever had because it has allowed me a perspective on humanity and on life and on the world that I don't think I would have otherwise. Um, I think that I understand politics, the climate crisis. I think I understand people of all places um, so much more than I ever have simply because I know what it's like to be in the lowest position. Um, I know what it's like to be discriminated and to have to suffer so much that you wish you were dead. Uh, and so, and so in many ways, this, this thing that is our downfall is also our, I think most valuable quality. Yeah. Well, thank you for correcting me. I, I, my, my bad, Adlene. I, I should have introduced no, no, okay. you that way. No, I, I love that you corrected me in the most uh, subtlest way. I love it. Um, you know, because we're that I think that's the, the whole point of what we're trying to do is is grow and make corrections. Right. See, even I need to keep working on it. I, I've definitely been whitewashed myself. <laughs> no, but you said something that was really uh, interesting. You were talking about, you know, basically giving fruit, beautiful things to others. And there's a saying that that I've heard many times, which is like el peor enemigo de un mexicano es otro mexicano. And I've also heard other iterations, el peor enemigo de un hispano es otro hispano, right? And you could attach it right. to any other, any other uh, ethnic group. Um, and and there's a lot of truth to that because we're, instead of empowering one another, all too often it's like we we just want to bury the other person deeper than 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 what they were. And that's not how it should be. I mean, collectively speaking, we as a, as, a, as a Mexican people or as an undocumented community, we should be empowering one another. And if we overcame that struggle for ourselves, we need to be sharing that wisdom, that strength, the courage, the, the, the support with others that aren't as privileged. Because if we know how good it felt to overcome that ourselves, why wouldn't we want that for somebody else when we know that they're struggling? And when, when, when we know that they're not only just struggling with the whole political and legal side of it, but also there's other aspects to it, which is the health, right? Which is a, another part of the conversation that gets very little attention, which is the care and the health of the undocumented community. Um, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, being undocumented has done is, for me, it's helped me be a little bit more empathetic towards people who are you know, not necessarily undocumented or Mexican or whatever, but it's taught me to have a different level, a different way of caring for other people. I see somebody who is in pain in, in, a, in a way that's maybe unfamiliar for me and, and I'll go talk to him, you know, hey, like, yeah. what's going on? You know, can I help? Um, and, and I think being undocumented taught me that because so many people did that for me and I know how good it felt. So if there's you know, an opportunity to do that, I, I look for it. And today is, it's really interesting for me because, um, for me, I, 
when I when I resolved within myself that you know what I'm not gonna kill my myself I'm gonna preserve my life and make the most out of it I said in that moment to myself that if I ever got the opportunity to get my papers I would get as much education as I want to me I set that my, as as my goal that was my thing I wanted to accomplish as as an undoc undocumented person and I set out for it as an undocumented person before DACA. Um, I was able to, you know, get my associate's degree in American Sign Language, which that is a totally different wow. discussion. And there's stories that, that accompany that that you'll just be like mind blown. But for the <laughs> sake of our time together, I, I won't go into too much. Um, from that, I ended up getting a Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of Utah in International Studies. And at that time, DACA had just come out. I was given DACA. I no longer had to wash dishes. I, I, it's when I first got married, I, we didn't have money for a car. And like I said, my wife was working three jobs. And so a friend of mine got me a job as a dishwasher for a catering company. And so that's what I did. You know, I washed dishes all day and I would bike, no joke. I would bike probably an hour and a half from our, ha wow. our, our basement apartment biking in in the snow in the in the heat oh my like gosh. in utah is very bipolar like one day it'll be yeah. 80 degrees and then the next day it'll be 40 with snow like that's just how crazy it gets but that was my thing so i did that for like probably two years and a half just biking every day to work washing dishes and then going back home i was exhausted but it gave me it made me feel good that like i was actually contributing and when daca was announced i was washing the dishes and all of my colleagues at that time maybe not even colleagues my co-workers better yet uh they listened to like npr and they made a they they interrupted the broadcast to say that you know D president obama was announcing daca and when he said that like i felt like this 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 feeling that i had never felt before and it was just like it was a lot of emotion a lot of just built up emotion that i didn't know how to process so what it, I I went down to the basement, went to the to the bathroom, yeah, in el baño, like I got on my knees and just wept because it felt real yeah. for the first time, for the first time yeah. having a status, not like or, or not even a status, but a legal presence felt real, right. you know, where like if somebody said, "Hey, let me see your ID." I I I probably could show them one without being afraid right. that like there was a big old p, uh, p for permit or r for restricted. Like it felt good knowing that that could have come my way. And then with DACA, you could get advanced parole. And I took advantage of that. I went to Japan and did a study oh. abroad over there, which was, again, another story for another day. But that was just such an inspirational thing because it taught me like, you know what? I didn't have papers and I almost wanted to kill myself like a year and a half ago. And look at me now, I'm halfway around the world in a country yeah. that I only dreamt about seeing the cars yeah. that I wish I could see in person and here they are driving in front of me. It, it, it was like my mind was blown. And then when I came back from, from Japan and was in, in uh, was at the LAX airport being allowed back in by immigration, again, the moment they stamped my passport and said, welcome back to the United States, I took those stairs down to, you know, to connect to the domestic terminal and I cried. I cried yeah. like a baby because <laughs> no one understood how I felt, not even my classmates that went on my program with me, but I knew what it meant. Yeah. And to me, it meant that I had accomplished that one goal, but it wasn't enough. And so I got a job later on and it was a good job, but I always felt I needed more education. And so I said, you know what? If the opportunity presents itself to get a master's, I'm going to do it. You know, Por qué no? that's 
That's what I always said. And sure enough, the opportunity came and not, and I graduated last year, not just with one master's degree. I ended up getting a second one. Basically I got the second one for free, which was insane. So it's like from a little dream that seemed so far away, here I am, you know, walking away with, you know, one master's degree in American sign language, one bachelor's degree in international relations and, uh, and, and two master's degrees, one's an MBA, the other one's a di- diplomacy and international relations master's with a concentration in uh, economic development in Latin America. And not only that, but I got a job with a really good company here in New York City. And today was the first time I went into the office. And the office, wow. no joke, is in the financial district where like Wall Street is and all that stuff. And the view, and I posted it on my Instagram so you could see the picture. <laughs> Literally, it's of the World Trade Center. It's just like, you know, right there. And I saw when I was looking at that this morning, when I stepped, when I was looking out the window, I was like, wow, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, my wife was working three jobs because I could not work or get go to school, do anything. And look at me 10 years later, I'm in the biggest city in the world, working for one of the biggest tech companies in the world. I have a view of the World Trade Center, which was something that I never, ever thought that I would have or be able to say to say that I have an office in New York City. is just like my mind this morning was just like blown. And that's when I realized, you know what? I'm not the only one. There are thousands of other dreamers who aspire to accomplish something like this. There are hundreds of people who are doing it today, if probably not thousands as well who are trying to continue to have the motivation to to move forward. But for whatever reason, they hit that wall and just can't keep going. Mm-hmm. So to me, like when I started this podcast, I started it because I wanted this to be a storytelling avenue that empowers other people, you know, and it doesn't have to be dreamers as well, yeah. you know, but it, it it's I think there's something beautiful in our stories that that we had something happen to us that we didn't necessarily want for ourselves, but we we took it as as it was and we made something of ourselves and that's what i think you know the power of this podcast is is that stories like you i mean one of the reasons why i felt really inspired to re- reach out to you and want to get you on my podcast is because the more i learned about you the more i connected with your story um I, and please let me know if you don't want to go into detail but i was reading about the fact that you had experienced cancer and more specifically breast cancer in your family and for me my my grandma had breast cancer and she overcame it probably 2 years ago and when i read your story i, I just couldn't help but just feel like your story is 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 exemplary not just for people like me who have family members who had cancer but also because of the fact that you overcame it and you overcame it in such a beautiful way and that's what I I I wanted to touch on was you know what and again you don't have to go into this if it's too personal but um what what was that experience like Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on all your achievements. I'm so (laughs) proud of you. And I know we've only known each other for like an hour. But, you know, like, I'm so happy to know that you have, you know, traversed this journey and, and ended where you are today. I think um, it's a great example of all the things that we can accomplish, regardless of who we are, where we come from status, like, it doesn't matter, right? What what a beautiful story. Congratulations. And thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. yeah, and then second, I actually, I this is I, this is like where science 
gets complicated, right? But um, I never actually had cancer. I have a cancer mutation. Mm. Um, so, so I'll explain it just so that people understand it. And they're like, you know, I'm always worried that someone's going to like call me out and be like, you said you had cancer and you never had cancer. So definitely want to make it clear that I did. I never actually had cancer, but my family, um, and actually, okay, let's back up. So our body, your body, everybody, and on the face of the earth, our bodies are engineered to fight cancer. So you know how like this chair has cancer, the, the floor has cancer, like everything around us can give us cancer, right? Yeah. And we have like little, just like little monsters in our body that are like, we're going to eat the cancer today. And so they start eating the cancer. So every day we're fighting cancer, just naturally, our bodies do that, right? Um, people like myself and my family um, who have a genetic mutation do not fight that cancer or they, we don't fight the cancer as naturally as other people do. So something in our genes um, basically allows the cancer to live in our body. And so we, we all have cancer, right? And it's a matter of when it's going to essentially turn on. And so if you think of it as a house, those little monsters are turning, the, somebody turns on the lights and the little monsters turn it off, right? My, my, my little monster leaves the light on. Um, and unfortunately, my BS um, on my mom, this comes, this, this genetic mutation comes from my grandfather on my mom's side. And so um, he, like a true Mexican macho man of the 1930s, had, um, had 36 children. And so with 36 children, there's a very clear pattern as to what's happening with this genetic mutation. And a lot of my BS uh, of the 36 have died because of breast cancer. Um, and our, our ability to not fight cancer is what kills us. And so um, when my, my Thea, who is 29 years old, she's the most recent one to pass away from cancer. When she passed away at 29, we realized that there was something genetically wrong with us. And we, we, we went on this like search as a family um, to figure out what, why, what, why, why women were dying of cancer. Um, and, and soon, you know, long story short, later on, I found, um, I found, uh, oh my gosh, I'm lost for words, uh, tumors in my breast. So there, there were tumors in my breast. There were several tumors, um, that ended up being non-cancerous, but because of my family history, I was told I had a 96% chance of developing cancer within five years. And I had like a 99.7 chance of dying from breast cancer in my lifetime. And so... I had these tumors inside me and I was dealing with being undocumented and I was in the middle of grad school and I felt like, just felt like I was going through an existential crisis, you know, one, yeah. like fighting my legal status and like fighting to stay home and then fighting to stay home in my body, right? Like fighting these little monster cancer, like cancerous monsters who don't want to protect me. And so I, when I was in grad school, I, I came to the realization that um, I'm not like a, a religious person um, in, in like a traditional way, but I came to a spiritual um, summit where I realized that politically as like brown undocumented bodies, we don't belong in this society, right? Like we're, we're, we're like the lowest of the low. Um, and, and that makes you feel like you want to die and you know everything that we discussed previously. Um, and then if you go deeper than that, because like I said before, if you don't feel comfortable in your environment and are not happy in your environment, the next closest thing that you feel safe in is your own body. And so for me, my own body was no longer safe. Like my body was literally trying to kill me. 
and I was being told that I, my body was going to kill me. And so I came to this realization that there had to be something to me that was more than my body and that was more than my legal status. And it, it had, it, I believe that there's something, I don't know if it's a soul, I don't know what it is, right? But I am not this cancer and I am not this status. I am something more than that. And I, I hope to continue living with that mindset that I am more than, than these things. Um, and so like any other person who is undocumented and has this flight or fight like uh, activation of status in their body constantly, I did what I had to do for myself to protect myself and to lower my chances of dying from breast cancer. Wow. So I had a, I had a double mastectomy and reconstruction. Um, and you know, it, it, it definitely lowered my chances of dying from breast cancer, but I still live constantly, um, paranoid that I have cancer in me or that it's going to turn on at any point. Um, and actually when it does turn on, I will die from it. Um, and if it does turn on, I will die from it. Um, I have personally decided not to seek any cancer treatment if I am diagnosed, diagnosed with any kind of cancer. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like being undocumented, right? Because in many ways I'm waiting to get caught. Like I'm waiting for ice to come knocking at the Interesting. door. I'm, wa I'm, I'm waiting for this cancer to turn <laughs> on. And, 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 and it's really messed up psychologically, but there's a lot of comfort in that because I feel that I know how to, I, I've been living that way for 25 years. So I know how to, how to like face this cancer situation, right? Like I know how to hide from, from the ice. Um, so in, in many ways, I know how to protect myself from cancer. Like now I eat organic and I work out every day and I'm yeah. like constantly, you know, like taking vitamins and drinking water and trying not to drink alcohol because that's cancerous and all these things are cancerous. And so it, it's so interesting the ways in which there are so many parallels between the health and the legal status. Um, and, you know, everybody chooses to approach it differently. I have tias that have decided not to have surgery who are also positive for this mutation. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of power in just having agency over your body and knowing what is yeah. right for you. And I think that's something that our community, just in general, needs to hear more of both documented, undocumented, citizen, non-citizen, whatever, health and mental health and getting checkups and eating right, all of that plays a big role in, in how we develop as individuals and how we are in tune with our own body. You know, I totally understand, you know, the being, the feeling of understanding and listening to what your body's telling you because I... I I haven't even discussed this yet on my podcast, so you know whoever's listening is getting an exclusive. Um, but for me, I have uh, celiac disease, and I didn't know I had celiac disease until 2017 when I was just having a lot of issues, you know, stomach issues. It just it didn't make sense why I always felt like I was in pain always, and it wasn't until my wife's like, "Yo, I think you might have celiac," and she started doing her research, and she's like, "I think you do." So I went to the doctors and sure enough, the doctor diagnosed me like, yeah, you have celiac. And just that change in diet, just not eating anything with wheat or gluten, it was like night and day. And I realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, if here I am e eating pan, right? Just pan in general. <laughs> and I thought that was fine. But when I realized that like eating bread with the undocumented lifestyle, like it's a cheap food. It is something that you can right. afford. And, and especially if you come from a family of a big family like mine, you know, there's eight, there were eight of us, I think, in our family with my parents included breads, uh, 
they go a long way. And so to cut that out of my diet has just been amazing. And so when you were talking about the fact that, you know, we need to listen to our bodies, we need to be in tune with our bodies, and it starts with things like what we put in it, um, that changes yeah. a lot of how we, you know, use our agency within our, our ourselves. Um, because again, that's not something that we're taught in our in our community. We're not taught to listen to how our bodies are are telling us how they're feeling. Like there's almost it's this separation between like what your gut is telling you versus what your brain is telling you. And I think that stems from again, you know, these external forces, whatever they may be, telling you, hey, consume this, consume that, use this, use that, um, and right. not necessarily considering the fact that they're not good for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know what, I think at one point, we were taught that at one point, and our grandparents and their grandparents knew how to listen to their bodies. Um, and they knew which plants and herbs to use to, to remedy the, the pain yeah. and, the, and all of the aches and all of that, right? But because, because of migration, because of the tactics that we've had to undergo for survival, because of, you know, just like having to, to survive and make it to the next day, we've lost that ability. We've lost that touch with ourselves and with nature. Um, and, and, you know, we can definitely get back there. Um, it just, it's, I think all the conversations we're having today are like about effort, you know, how much effort are you willing to put into your own life? Yeah. Right. Like how, how much effort are you willing to put into your dreams into your culture into your history? Like how much effort do you have for yourself today? Exactly. And I think that that transcends into, I guess, the, the last uh, half of the podcast, which really is pretty much the end at this point. We've talked a lot about, you know, really interesting topics that for those who are maybe unfamiliar with the undocumented experience, because I will tell you that I, I have personal friends who are not undocumented and are using this podcast series that I created, obviously, because they're my friends and, you know, they're going to support me <laughs> because I created it. But um, they're also learning. And to have yeah. these types of voices and conversations, uh, I had a conversation with one of my wife's friends, which was basically that she is just like, wow, I had no idea that this is exactly what you guys are living or this is how complex it is. And so it's just like the greater voice that we can, the, the greater collective voice we can provide to bring the realities of our circumstances, I think the more impact we will have in assuaging people who maybe are um, anti-immigrant or anti, you know, um, you know, immigrant rights and stuff like that. It, it goes a long way. And so the last question that I wanted to ask you, because you talked about the fact that you started to go into the Mexica movement. I know that that's a movement that I started to look into myself a couple years ago. Um, and it's a movement that I think is gaining a lot of traction, especially with the younger, uh, generation of, of Mexicans specifically. Um, and so why did you feel like it was important for you to promote, you know, going back to, you know, the indigenous, uh, roots, the, the Aslan part, right? I think that's another big part of the Mexica yeah. movement. Um, why, why did you feel like that was important to, to revert back to? Well, okay, so I guess I'll start by telling you my connection to this imagery and what, um, how, how it started for me, right, on my own personal journey. But um, I grew up, my father is an artist, and so in many ways I became an artist because he always wanted to be like a professional working artist in the art world. That was his dream 
since he was very, very little. Um, I always hear stories about how he would watch Bob Ross obsessively and just wanted to be like Bob Ross his whole life, you know, like living in Arteaga, Michoacan with like dirt roads and like, you know, struggling to have a piece of paper and a pencil to draw. But he always wanted to be an artist um, and, and never got the opportunity to do that. And so when he brought us to this country, he did it so that we didn't have to sit there watching people on the TV do what we wanted to do, right? Um, we came here because he wanted us to be the people on TV doing the things that, that, that we all want to do and dream of, right? Those like amazing jobs or careers or whatever. And so I, I rebelled against art for a period of my life, my youth life, because I felt that um, there was a lot of pressure from my father to be an artist. Um, and I, and I thought, I thought to myself, well, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be told what to do. But the reality was that I was already an artist, even if I was rejecting it. Like that was, I think that's part of being an artist is rejecting that you're an artist, right? Like that, everybody goes through that at some point. Um, and so I, I realized that I was not escaping this path. And then I more, I think, realized that I, my dad sacrificed so much for me that if I could in a way sacrifice my dream career which I don't really think I have one I think I'm, I'm this is my dream career but if, if I could give up my life and give him a career that he always wanted through myself then why wouldn't I do that right this man crossed lands and oceans for me like and he would do it all over again and and he would do all every single part of his life he would do it all over again for me so why couldn't I give him this one thing and so I embarked on this journey to be an artist, to be a painter specifically, um, not really knowing what I wanted to focus my work on, but knowing that I wanted to be a good painter so that he would be proud of me and that he would be proud of himself and his sacrifices. And I slowly realized that everything I was looking at, um, I went to community college for four years before I was able to go to art school because like yourself, you know, I had no way of getting a social or going to school or a scholarship or anything like that. So um, I, but, but in that community college education, I realized quickly that everything I was learning about was not reflecting where my culture was not reflecting my people. I was tired of looking at white naked ladies painted by white old men, you know? Um, and, and so I, I went home and I started to, to question like, what was on my walls? What, what were the paintings that were at my house? What were the pictures? What were the books that were in my house? And my father with his very limited art knowledge um, he's extremely talented. I think that he is the most incredible painter and artist alive right now. Um, even even though he has no education or presence in the art world, you know, he is he is just incredible. So, but even with his limited knowledge, he was showing us in our home um, images of our native people um, and our stories. Right, like he was making he was literally making paintings for my family that had Quetzalcoatl. Um, and, and paintings that showed us how we, how we illustrated water, how we draw the stars, um, paintings that had rituals um, that were sacred, uh, ceremonies. And, and these paintings were beautifully crafted in my own house. You know, they were paintings that you would see in a museum, but they were in my house. And my father, in many ways, was trying to show us what we weren't, didn't have access to, what we left behind. Right. We he grew up with all that. Um, he grew up with access to the to the stories from his grandfather and his grandmother and and all of that. But uh, but we didn't. And so uh, I think subconsciously he was recreating these stories for us to live with them. 
And he never forced them upon us. He was never like, look at this painting. It's telling this story. And this is how creation started. And this is the leyenda of so-and-so. He never forced us to look at them, but he made sure that we had them in our environment so that we could we would recognize them, right? And And when I made that connection, when I realized that my father was trying so hard for us to not be whitewashed, for us to like like wearing huaraches, for us to like our native textiles, I I think that that was my shift where I was like this is incredible. My 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 whole life I've been trying to figure out how I fit into the society, but I actually fit into this place that I've never been to and it somehow is in my own home. My father has recreated that for me. So I I made it like I guess uh, my own mission to jump back into that for myself, to say like, what are these images that I'm looking at? Like, let me educate myself about them. Um, and I was really lucky that I, I ended up meeting Antonio Mejia um, and his son Chico Mejia, and they are tattooers in, in Pomona in LA. Um, and they started to tattoo my body with the same images that were in my house, the same, the same uh, rituals, the same everything. And and I began to really like dive into they dive into the stories and, and understand them from a historical and cultural perspective. Um, Antonio is extremely knowledgeable and so so generous with his with his knowledge. And I every time I sat in his chair, um, I learned more about myself. And it wasn't so much about the tattooing, but it was more about building these uh, bridges to the motherland right and building these bridges to my ancestors and understanding how they're still inside me um how i want to be them how i want to channel them how i need to have them with me in order to feel protected right especially when i'm not protected in the society i'm not protected in, in my own body the only thing that protects me really is this connection that i have to my ancestors and and so for me it was really that it was like how how do i um connect back to my people and my roots and it's, it, it, I guess I did it through tattooing, right? Through investigating um, the Mexica traditions through tattooing. And, and it, this beautiful thing happened where my brother and my, my brother and my sister, they also wanted to do the same thing. They were like, hold on, Arlene is doing it. Like, I want to learn more about myself as well. How do I jump into this? And so my whole family decided to take tattooing on as the way that we would find our cultural identity. Um, and so my siblings are not as heavily as tattooed as me, but they're on their own journey and they're, they're discovering their own self. Um, they have their wow. own stories and their own version of these stories tattooed on themselves. And, and it's really empowering, right? Because uh, my brother, who I'm guessing is maybe around your age, for, for many, many, many years was so ashamed of being undocumented and couldn't get himself to even celebrate the fact that he was an immigrant, Right. And, and through the tattooing and through my work, this kid has, he's not a kid, he's an adult, but he, he's, this kid has turned into like the opposite of that, right? Where he's like proud to show his tattoos. He has his tattoos all over himself and he is proud to have long hair and he's proud to say that he's an immigrant. He's proud to be undocumented and he's proud to be DACA. And he's no longer standing in that kitchen wondering if he needs to end his life because of his status, right? And, and, and I think, that is the power of art. That is the, like what yeah. I that what gets me up every morning. What gets me off is is how art can be the thing that shifts your own perspective, right? Art can be the thing that allows you to to feel more powerful, to feel more connected, not only to your ancestors but to your neighbors, 
to feel like we are all just one big, I don't even know, maybe this is like this hippie thought, right? But like art gives us the ability to connect to one another. Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of incredible. It's amazing. And that is, I mean, when I saw your, your tattoos and I saw just how beautifully they, they capture, you know, our culture, you know, I was inspired to reach out and I'm so, I'm so glad that you were, you were able to join us and share your amazing story and the inspiration behind who you are and what you're trying to do for our community. Realistically, we need more people like you who want to promote being authentic, who, you know, have gone their own internal growth to be able to be comfortable in their bodies and to be, you know, strong in who they are and confident in what they want to become. And I love the fact that you have, you know, you're all covered in tattoos because they're not tattoos of like regrets, right? I don't know if you saw, we're the millers, (laughs) but like, you know, you have tattoos that mean something and it's not just something you know, comical. It's not something that, you know, just, you know, you walk down the street and you're going to see 10 other people have, right? Yours means something. And I think what you're trying to do through art is beautiful. My sister, she's an artist as well. And I see how she's capturing, you know, beauty through how she views the world through, you know, her artwork. And, you know, um, Adelina, I, I think that is a beautiful way to kind of end today's podcast. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more about you? Obviously, you're a very inspirational uh, individual. So how can people, you know, get get to know you better? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I think if anyone wants to contact me or get in touch or anything, um, my website's pretty accessible. It's uh, correavalencia.com. And then I'm always on Instagram. I think I'm like Instagram obsessed with like everyone else. I'm, I always share, <laughs> I probably share too much on Instagram. You'll see a lot of my niece. Um, she's my biggest inspiration in this life. And uh, I share about my family constantly. I share about the projects that I'm working on. And if you want to be a little more private, I have a, you can message me on my website. Um, yeah, you can look at all the work that I've done in the past, all the projects that are coming up. Um, if you're in the Bay Area, I'm opening a show with Catherine Clark this summer in San Francisco. So oh, cool. I will have an exhibition, um, I think end of July. I'll announce that on Instagram and through the website as well. Awesome. Uh, and so for anybody listening, if you felt inspired by the words that were shared today, um, please continue to support this podcast. I have many hopes, dreams, and aspirations for what it can become and for what it, for what I want it to do. And honestly, what I want it to do is to inspire everybody else by having people like Adelene and, every, you know, Carlos, Joaquin, everybody who I've had so far. Please continue to support. Please share, you know, this podcast. And, you know, if you have any questions for me, you can email me at uh, thedreamerdiary21 at gmail.com and uh, I'll, I'll respond that way. But on that note... Uh, I think this is a a good time to end today's podcast and we'll catch everybody on the next one.